This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. Today's guest is the long-anticipated, at least on my account, author Abigail Schreier, whose book, Irreversible Damage has just been launched and can be found wherever books are not being burned, that is, being sold. Irreversible Damage is a nonfiction book about the ways in which young women are being affected by the transgender ideology that is being promulgated from various different platforms, not least of all the medical establishment, the psychological establishment, and various bowers of social media. This book is hard-hitting, very fact-based, and incredibly written, and I was surprised to find that this was her first book, and I'm looking forward to the subsequent books that she's going to be publishing if the cancelers don't get her first. I'm joking. This is a wonderful interview, and let's dive right in. Here is Abigail Schreier. That was my first book. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what have you been doing? You've been writing articles then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm a journalist. I write articles, and I've been home with my kids. Oh, okay. Wow. This is phenomenal work for your debut. Oh, thanks. I have to say, I'll tell you something crazy, and, and maybe nobody would believe me, but it it wasn't it wasn't hard. Hmm. Um, maybe I'm not supposed to say that, but I I definitely I think it suits me, if that makes sense. Um, you know, writing the isolation, <laughs> yeah, it, it really suits me. I don't I don't think I could ever be a media personality that doesn't suit me, but but the writing part does. I, I'm I've always been decent with long writing projects, so. Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't sell your I, I really loved short it. on the media front. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, but and no, how that, long that, was the, the writing, was, yeah, for it. So, well, I started the research for the article. I wrote an article in January, not not this past January, the one before, so January 2019 for the Wall Street Journal on this. So I had so, sort of it underway, but I didn't get my book deal until I don't think I started on the. I didn't start on the book till June. And it was due in January. So I, I really had a very short timeline because I'm a first-time author, and that's yeah. what they gave me. <laughs> yeah. Hit the ground. So, I kind of had to. But um, anyway, it was fun. Yeah, a lot of interviews, a lot of human research. And what, what would you say the ratio between, uh, I guess, a lot of interviews versus, I guess, uh, like articles and stuff that you read? Because there's a lot of research in there, too. There is, you know, I talk to a lot of people. People are really good at boiling down research and telling you what's what's the most important thing. And I don't think research has ever been my strong suit. Um, I, I'll do it if I have to. But um, when, I, when I say research, I mean the you know the scientific studies were hard. I'm not used to reading you know all these scientific studies, and so I certainly wasn't was very quick to pick up the phone and ask an expert, you know, whenever I had a question. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and the biology, I mean, gosh, a lot of the just sort of 
anatomy and and how it's affected by things like testosterone. This was completely new to me. I mean, I'm basically dealing with a high school level biology because I was a humanities major. So I haven't gone past high school in, in the sciences. So I, I really needed help. And fortunately, I was able to get it. This is a author, another authorly question, but how did you frame your perspective uh, going in and maintaining that? What, what was the kind of the... Were you trying to not have bias, or would you allow yourself to have a decision? Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so that's interesting. So, of course, I always have some opinion, um, but it also changes. Um, So I had sort of a framework for understanding this. Um, By the time I started, when I started on the article, I had no idea. When I listened to the first parents, I had no idea if this was real, this phenomenon of, of peer contagion to explain the sudden and, and startling explosion of transgender identification among teen girls. I had no idea if that really, if it really was so, social contagion and, and to what extent and what was a social contagion. So that was all new to me. Um, I think I'm, you know, I'm a member, I'm, I'm in Gen X. I still believe in objectivity. I believe that's a real thing that you can strive for um, as a journalist. That's sort of the ideal. And I, I think that to, to a large extent, I tried to be very open to different people. And, and was my mind changed on, on many things? Yes, because I talked to everybody. So, for instance, you know, I, you hear a lot, you know, X and Y or child abuse by the parents. Well, you know, including people like to say that about people who transition their, their young children. Well, when you actually talk to parents who have young children who are seem to be suffering from genuine gender dysphoria, you realize that they're not necessarily being told of all the risks of the hormonal treatment. They don't understand how they're being, they're relying on experts who are, who are really mischaracterizing the incredibly experimental nature of things like puberty blockers. Hmm. So I I certainly would never characterize what goes on there as child abuse. Um, And um, you you know, so in lots of ways, my opinion, you know, did change. Um, on things that didn't change. I have to say there were, there were actors that seemed better to me at the end and worse. Hmm. Um, so it went in both directions. You said something startling, and I've heard this elsewhere, but what are your thoughts on the ways in which the so-called experts aren't being completely forthright, at least with the experimental nature of these drugs? Why are they doing that? Because they, they sort of have, I think, a, a, something of a messiah complex, right? They, hmm. they seem more like religious leaders than they seem like doctors, unfortunately. And this isn't all of them, but lots of them, right? So you hear them say things that sound so astonishingly unscientific. And this is certainly, you know, I quote Lisa Lemon in the book. I interviewed her many times. And one of the things she said was that she was really startled when she went to a WPATH conference, although I think it was USPATH, which is a division. Anyway. And, and she went to a conference and she realized transgender medicine was not being, you know, treated like every other kind of medicine. And every, you know, honest doctor I talked to has told me the same, that, the, that it's the only area of medicine where people don't openly discuss the risks. Hmm. Whereas if you're at a conference to talk about any other kind of medicine, you know, the newest, you know, a, you know, a cholesterol medicine, everybody talks about the risks. But, but there's really an effort by activists to suppress that discussion, and unfortunately, they're very effective. Mm. Um, so transgender people are not, are not receiving the best care they could. They've made it too risky to talk about risks? 
I think so. I mean, that, that's certainly doctors I've talked to who've been to the, you know, conferences, w, WPATH and, and whatnot, transgender medicine conferences, say that there is no open exploration of the risks. People only want to be cheerleaders from this identity for this transgender identity rather than serious scientists approaching the study of gender dysphoria. And, you know, you don't even have to, I mean, just look at the culture. I mean, you know, um, they they don't even refer to, the, I mean, look at the terms that they're referred to it now. Um, they, they use the terms, you know, things like transgender medicine, or they use the terms like gender affirming surgery. I mean, surgical clinics will say gender affirming surgery. Well, we doctors I, were never supposed to be in the business of affirming, hmm, right? Yeah. That, that wasn't, doctors were supposed to be, you know, surgeons were in the business of healing, but not affirming. Okay. So they're, they've adopted this language that just sort of takes them out of the scientific realm. Yeah, and that's one thing that it might happen as an elective surgery for adults, but your book focuses specifically on children or minors and specifically on female minors. And is there like a more snags or uh, you know more careful research around uh, this topic when it regards children and minors? No, in fact, I mean, look how everyone gets shut down. My my book, okay, my book is simply an exploration of both the scientific, the the, the medical and the mental health and the cultural. Um, conditions that allowed for a sudden explosion of young teenage girls who do not seem to have genuine gender dysphoria to suddenly claim they have gender dysphoria and identify as transgender, okay? That's all it is. And yet I'm not allowed to, my, my, my publisher is not allowed to advertise my book on Amazon, okay? That's absurd, right? The activists have stopped it. Activists right now are trying to get my publisher to drop me. Again, uh, it's absurd. Why should activists, you know, many of them biological men, grown men, why should they have anything to say about the mental and physical health care offered to young girls? It, it, this is truly an issue. People, you know, people like to say about abortion, well, that's about a woman and her body, okay? She, she's the only one who could have any say over her body. And, you know, people feel different ways about that. Some people point out that, look, it's not just her body. There's another life at stake. And other people disagree. They say it's fundamentally about her body. But in, the case, in this example, it is entirely about a young girl's body. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why are so many activists, why are they able to shut down discussion about young girls' bodies? And they're shutting that, that discussion down within the medical field, the psychiatric field, and the just the cultural field. If we look at what's happened to J.K. Rowling and very recently Gender Critical on Reddit, which was a subreddit devoted to women's issues from a women's perspective, they've been shut down too. That's exactly right. I've been talking to some of the women you know, about that, and it's, it's horrifying. The, that, that subreddit was where a lot of women, it was a space for women to, to question and talk about the gender ideology that was harming young girls. And it was an open forum for them. Why should activists be able to shut that down? Hmm. It's sort of none of their business, yeah. right? And detransitioners have told me that when they stumbled across, you know, so-called, you know, radical feminism or gender critical discussion, about the meaning of biological sex and gender identity and whatnot, it was the first time that they realized 
wait a second, I, you know, a lot of the stuff I've been taught doesn't make any sense. I'm still a girl, even if I don't like pink things. And, and, and that sort of stumbling on sites like that subreddit are the first time they saw pushback to the, that ideology. Well, that explains why it's gone then. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So what's the matter with girls today? You know, girls are in profound mental distress. Um, there's there's no question about it. I mean, in some sense, this whole ide- trans identification spike in, in adolescent girls has nothing to do with transgender people and everything to do with the mental health crisis that we're in the midst of. In, in terms of cutting, suicide, depression, so every kind of self-harm, we are seeing spikes specific, specifically among adolescent girls that we've never seen before. We even see it with tweens. Okay, so before they even hit their teenage years, you know, 11-year-old girls, we've never had a problem with suicidal ideation among populations so young, hmm. and now we have it. Um, and Jonathan Haidt talks a lot about that. Um, and it's these girls are in crisis. And of course, when girls are in pain, they look to the culture, they look to explanations for their pain. And in, in the past, they have looked to, gosh, I'm so fat. If only I were, you know, had less fat, I would be happy. I just know it. Yeah. And another, you know, we, we've seen this with demonic possession. We've seen this with yeah. all kinds of social contagions. And today they're saying, it's my dysphoria. It's that I'm supposed to be a boy. So that pattern of behavior, and I've explored that with Lisa Lippman and with Lisa Marciano and with Sasha Ayad, all of whom feature in your book, uh, that pattern of behavior is uh, its something that women tend to go through or have been documented to go through. Could you explain a little bit more about social contagion and why is it that females are kind of susceptible to that, it seems? Right. So it has to do with their modes of friendship. And I talk about this a bit in the book that girls try to meet their friends where they are. And they're even willing to suspend reality in order to meet their friends where they are. So um, if another, if a girl's friend is in pain, she not only wants to empathize, but she sort of wants to share in the pain. She likes to share on an emotional level with the with what her friends are going through. And that's why female friendships are so, so close. But it's also can can be bad. And and when one of them is in a mental health crisis, they are, young teenage girls are much more likely to take that on themselves mm-hmm. and either share in their friend's anorexia or, you know, even share in their friend's depression. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting concept to suspend reality in your own experience as a woman if i may gender you in this conversation did you go through a similar uh just being able to completely be swept up in somebody else's story and how did you gain your own legs and your connection to reality sure we all did so the first time any of my friends was dumped by a guy we hate that guy he's the worst guy on earth he's evil he's mean there's nothing good about him right and of course you grow you grow out of that you get to a point where you say okay the relationship didn't work out it doesn't mean he's necessarily evil (laughs) (laughs) it might just mean that you two weren't a great fit you know maybe he didn't handle it right but then again he's only 16 you know you get to a place where you where you can say those things but but in adolescence it's not it's he's bad he's awful that that guy's the biggest jerk ever you know, that's what you do for your friends. And how is that behavior or that process of development exacerbated by the new tools that, of social media that we have at hand? They have at hand, the kids do. Well, 
right? It all gets more extreme and it's 24 seven. So we know that, you know, girls like to compare each other, compare themselves to each other. They do this naturally. How does my body stack up to other girls? How many friends do I have? Am I being included? Girls care about that. And we've never had such a cruel mechanism for trapping girls in this cycle of social media and tracking them. You can see, you never have to wonder how much prettier so-and-so is. You just read the number of likes. Yeah. That's astonishing. It seems to perform the math for you to literally calculate how much more popular someone else is. If you suspect that your friends may have excluded you and gone to the movie without you, you don't have, in my generation, you didn't have to see the photos. You didn't have to see the photos of the party you weren't invited to. Now you have to see the photos. It's so cruel. Mm. And not to mention all the comments. Yeah, the, the comments about each other's bodies and everything else. It's it's so belittling and it makes life so hard for a teenage girl. And how do you think that the process of maturing out of that is going to happen? Or have you seen people break through that, uh, that social media fixation and get to the other side of it? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, as young women you know, emerge to adulthood, they'd stop taking it as seriously. But I do I know what a generation that's been raised on social media, how they will regard it? Yeah. I can't say that I do. I mean, what matures us, of course, is spending time with each other in person. You know, um, mm. I mean, I think part of the extremism that we're seeing today is just not enough time with each other that this younger generation has. The extreme politics, the extreme, you know, anger. I mean, it was so obvious to me growing up that I didn't agree with all of my neighbors. I didn't even like all of my neighbors, but there was always something good about them and worthwhile. We didn't like throw them away. Yeah. It wasn't like they were worthless people just because maybe they didn't agree with our politics or, or they were unfriendly or whatever it was, right? But today the impulse to cancel, to throw someone completely out, if you found one flaw, yeah. it's just, it's so Manichaean. I think Andrew Sullivan calls it that, but that's exactly right. Hmm. Um, it's all good or all bad. Yeah. And how do you think that gender dysphoria became the fix-all problem? It's weird. It's, it's, it's a solution that's actually a problem, but it fixes every other problem. Right. So this is complicated. A bunch of reasons. One, I think girls noticed they had fallen in esteem and status in the broader culture. Um, there's no question they've fallen. Young boys are allowed to outcompete them. Mediocre boy athletes are now outcompeting them, taking their trophies. They find biological men in their locker rooms when they go to change, showering. This has happened. Um, they, they notice that the culture has turned against them. There is the, Being a white girl today is not the greatest thing to be on campus, um, right? They're, they're just another Karen or whatever you call it. Um, so they really were were primed to look for a victim shield for for the withering you know contempt from their from their peers and the only thing they can choose they can't choose to be a mind you know have different skin color or different race whatever but they can choose to be trans yeah that but that that covers the older set does that is that the same mechanism that's operating in 11 12 year olds that, that came oh. the same esteem or status uh, seeking. Well, let, let's talk about the teens because I really focus on you know the adolescents. So let's yeah. uh, the by the time they hit high school and middle school. So I don't you know 
for sure they're aware, right? We talk about, you know, LGBTQ and who's an ally and who is, you know, by definition, I guess, an enemy all the time. That's, That's a huge part of what goes on in school today. So they're more than aware that they don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Um, yeah. c- certainly in by high school. Okay. Yeah. Um, and do do have you focused on the 11, 12 year old uh, set? Cause I guess the psychology and then the mechanisms of why gender dysphoria is uh, something that's being latched onto probably changes depending on, on the age range of what's going on. Sure. So gender dysphoria obviously always typically began in early childhood. Um, so I, you know, some number of the kids who are gender dysphoric will be will in begin in chi- early childhood. They prob- they may actually have gender dysphoria. Um, you know, obviously there's a definition. It's a hundred year diagnostic history that we mm. have a lot of knowledge about gender dysphoria. Um, so I I really looked at the girls who were not at all the demographic and in fact didn't seem to have typical gender dysphoria at all. So. Among whom you could really see that it, you know, uh, the prevalence rate that Lisa Littman pointed out really indicated, you know, something else, peer contagion. Uh, prevalence rate, sorry, especially among friend groups. Um, so the earlier kids, the ones who start on puberty blockers, that's a more complicated story because, of course, it involves the parents. Okay. Um, it must always involve the parents. Whenever the, the story has to be told about these young kids, you, you sort of, by necessity, it has to be told to parents. By the time they hit middle school, their lives from their parents are starting to come apart. They watch, they go to their own social media, their parents have nothing to do with. They go to their own high school and, and middle school. You know, they tend to care more what their peers think than their parents for the first time when they hit high school and whatnot. So it, hmm. it's a different, it really is a different set of girls. Yeah. And why do you think that, could you expand a little bit more on why girls are having such a hard time now? You spoke about mental health, but is there some structure that's missing? And we talked about social media as something that's amplifying distress, but is there something missing that you've found that they don't, that they don't have to latch onto? One, one quote that you, from your book is that they don't have a moral language anymore. They have a clinical language anymore. Could you expand on that? Oh, that's that's true. So one thing about this generation is my generation of parents. So Gen X, who's raising this Gen Z, um, they we we really you know one thing that distinguished us from our parents is therapy. We were very open to therapy, um, and we were much much quicker. It turns out to to introduce our kids to therapy even at a very young age, and this generation is so psychologically aware that they will tell you not hmm. only what the, what their struggles are, but they will give you the diagnosis. Oh, that's my social anxiety. Oh, I was just having a panic attack. They always explain these terms in psychiatric terms. They very often will explain what they're going through in psychiatric terms. So when I was growing up, it was just she's shy yeah. or she's awkward or she's not cool. But but it wasn't she has social anxiety. And, um, and, and because of that, they start out thinking that there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even when we might be talking about a very, you know, low and manageable degree of these things, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't treat a child who's had a panic attack or anything like that, but, but these, these girls are hyper aware of the psychiatric diagnosis that may lurk behind any discomfort they're feeling. It seems to be in the book, you speak about how you were confronted when, when you expressed shyness or your parents saw you were being anxious, they gave you more responsibility in life. Like you have to talk to the cashier, you have to, you know, confront whatever's making you 
uh, anxious. And it seems that moral language is more geared towards a solution, towards confronting the problem that's that's kind of acted out. It, it's more dramatic in a way, um, whereas the psychiatric language, does it not tend towards, well, I need a pill or I need some sort of therapy that's that's removed from day-to-day life? Right. It removes your agency. So my parents' attitude was very much like, I don't care what you're feeling. You still have to say thank you. Hmm. you. When you call your friends, you still have to talk to the mother, say hello, ask her how she is, and then ask if you can please speak to her daughter, right? There were, yeah. there were things I had to do. There was a rigmarole, and it, was, it had nothing to do with my – no one cared what, whether it stressed me out. Huh. It was just you know politeness. That, that's what they called it. Now, I'm not saying that you know if your child has a profound – you know, psychological problem that you should necessarily force them through every, you know, thing that someone who's not suffering needs to be pushed through. But today we are, we are, we take away the agency of these girls and what they can do so quickly. Mm -hmm. And we medicate them so quickly so that they, they do start thinking of themselves who as, as kids who can't handle life. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the word comorbidity, or there's a number of different problems that are stacking up. And, and I've seen this in the, my research, which just involves talking to people, where it seems that gender dysphoria or changing my gender or going along a transgender journey or just a gender journey, I really like that one, um, that, that is what will resolve everything. Um, it seems that... Um, I lost my train of thought, but that... It's right. I mean, attractive. yeah, these, these girls don't know that it's normal. They, we don't even have normal anymore. What, they, what these girls don't know is that it's so normal to feel uncomfortable in your body. It's normal not even want to want to be a girl at some point. Those are just things that young women go through. Hmm. Okay. It's normal to hate your body. It's normal to feel ugly. It's normal to not enjoy puberty. All these things are just part of girlhood. And we were basically in my generation, we were sort of told to suck it up. And, you know, it was stuff you complained about with your girlfriends. But today, those those girlfriend relationships aren't happening in the same way. OK, the, you don't take the You don't hang out after school with your friends at the mall anymore. Okay. And if you do and if you do spend time with your friends, you're on your phone. So you're not comforting each other in the same way. If anything, you're bringing all your problems to mom. And mom is much more likely to seek out a medical solution and to seek out a diagnosis than the friends, my, you know, than your girlfriends, my generation would have been. And what have you discovered about uh, the parenting around uh, the gender dysphoria peaking up and even going away? What, what are some of the patterns that you've seen in the way that the style of parenting that's fomented or decreased the process towards actual transition? You know. The, the parents I have spoken to are incredible. I mean, they are the most attentive parents. They are the most conscientious. They, they would do anything for their daughters. I mean, really, they were a remarkable group of people that I met. And, and it was humbling as a parent to hear how much they were willing to do for their, their kids. And one of the things that's very hard is that these parents were, by and large, politically progressive. And they were so open-minded to their daughter's announcements of a new gender identity or in some case just sexual orientation at a very when the girls were very young that sometimes they didn't realize that what the girl was really asking for was individuation not really declaring a new sexual orientation or gender identity 
And the reason I say that is these this generation has had less sexual experience than any prior generation by a lot. They are less likely to have ever kissed anyone. So I'm not saying, you know, if your kid says they're gay, tell them they don't know what they're talking about. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't say that. But what I'm saying is these that you discover things like your sexuality by being with people, not on the Internet. Yeah. And and these parents were, were very conscientious and they took their kids at sometimes so seriously when they would make declarations about things they couldn't possibly really know about themselves because they actually didn't know themselves that well. Um, certainly yeah. not vis-a-vis their things like sexuality when they had had such limited experience. Yeah. It seems like, uh, you don't want to learn how to fix a car by going to an online classroom. You want to go to a trade school and dating is right. the trade school for romance and, and exactly. physical in- intimacy. And they're being robbed of that, but they have all the ideas in their head about this, that right. and other thing. They have all the images on tap that you could possibly imagine. Um, there's something else too. My generation really grew up thinking like we didn't want to be the lame parents. Our parents were, you know, we were going to do away with spanking. We were going to be more psychologically aware. And there's been a real effort, I think, to really listen to their, our kids and meet them where they are, which is part of why parenting has become so exhausting, mm. to be honest. Okay. And when kids try to rebel today, their parents are much more likely to join in their rebellion. So a girl wants to get her ears pierced, the mom will say, I'll go with you, I'll get mine pierced too. Or the girl wants to go to the rock concert, the, and the mom's like, great. I mean, my parents never wanted to listen to my music. They told me my music was terrible. And it... <laughs> and, you know, if I didn't think it at the time, but looking back, it's very clear to me that that allowed me to have a space where I where I had successfully individuated because yeah. they hated my music. Yeah. So now I was a different. I wasn't just an extension of my parents. And when my, and sometimes when some of the parents try to join their kids in all the things that were there, they're actually trying to define who they want to be as an adult, if their parents co-opt that rebellion, it sometimes causes the, the girl to escalate her rebellion. And she says, you know what, mom, forget it. I don't even, I don't, I'm not a lesbian. I'm not like you at all. I'm actually a boy. Yeah. And, and for a lot of parents, that's when they finally say, wait a second. Yeah. There was you know, a profound quote on? in your book where you say, when your child comes out as gay, they're asking you to they're asking their parents to accept who they are when they come out as trans they're asking their parents to accept what they're not and you get into the cognitive dissonance or or um what 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 would you describe that of of the parent having to suddenly shift reality around the child right so people like to compare this to announcements of being gay i don't think it's like that at all i really don't um the reason is is because very often, what the ch- that what the teenager who suddenly found this ideology and latched onto it, you know, call me Jim. I've always been a boy. This stuff is they're asking their parents to buy into something they don't at all believe, mm-hmm. um, and the parents don't think is true. It's very hard. And if the parent doesn't toe the line and do exactly what the teen asks, um, sometimes the, the the you know if the child gets to a certain age, they'll cut them off. Mm-hmm. And it's just. It's a lot to ask of a parent to, you know, deny everything they believe to be reality and pretend the child was somehow always a boy. I think um, so. Uh, one parent told me a, an interesting story. Um, she, one parent who called me, told me an interesting story. She said she had um, a good friend who had completely embraced their daughter's transition to being a a, a boy, and you know, 
hormonal and then surgical transition. And the and they the parents were really into it. They introduced everybody to their daughter as a boy, called them called them their son. Anyway, the the girl who had a lot of mental health problems, this young person was, I guess, went through transition 16, 17. And then by 19 had completed transition and whatnot, but eventually committed suicide. And my the woman who called me said, you know, I attended the funeral and what was so uh, disturbing about the funeral was they had to pretend because the child had only, this young person had only transitioned, been tra fully transitioned for two years. They had to essentially pretend that the child only had a, the, the, the young woman had only had a two year history of life. Mm. So they had a video montage, but it was two years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and it's that kind of a, you know, rewriting of history yeah. that's involved. It's really disturbing how one thing leads to another and escalation of the denial of reality. And it keeps on coming back to it. I, there's, it has all these multiple fallouts. Like there's a lot of argument on what is a woman to find a woman is sex real? No gender's real. But when you get into, you know, enforcing I don't want to call it a lie, but enforcing this fiction, and that's what it was used to uh, be thought of as a legal fiction that you changed your gender. You know? I spoke with Ray Blanchard, and that's how he talked about how uh, before this current wave of transgender-ism um, came about, you change, the government would grant you a change of gender. But because it's being enforced so much, like, like you described with that, parents, like... They are now just, we're losing limbs, we're losing parts of our history. It's destabilizing our society in profound ways. And one of the profound ways is the young women. Right. I mean, remember that, you know, I interviewed a lot of transgender adults in my book. And the adults who came of age at a very different time, and of course did not discover being transgender from the internet. These yeah. are people who were genuinely gender dysphoric from a very young age. They didn't say they were never, they didn't deny their history. If you talk to them, they will say to you very often, um, transgender adults will say to you, no, I was, I, I was biologically a girl, but I'm most comfortable dressed this way, or I was biologically a boy. I'm most comfortable presenting as a woman, but I don't deny my entire history. Hmm. Um, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't participate in that fiction. Well, why do you think that it's different now? What do you think changed about the conversation that now we're in this enforced, um, way of seeing this entire issue i would just say that activists tend to be very extreme members of any group by by definition and the transgender activists are no exception they are a very extreme um um version <laughs> i suppose um they, they're and and the young people who are coming of age seem to be remarkably uh prone to extremism um, you know, you, you read, you know, you, you see the way they cut off family members who don't share their politics or whatever, you know, look, family, family celebrations were always about mixing together people who were, who are related and your family, even though they don't agree with you and you're embarrassed by half of them or whatever. I mean, that was just family. And today it's, oh, you don't have share my politics. I'll, yeah. I'll just cut you off. I'll never talk to you again. Yeah. I mean, this is really bizarre stuff. It's coming from two directions. You, you kind of describe the extremism of young people. We could probably 
ascribe that to social media and the way that blocking functions, the way that you get to dislike or like posts or ignore people. Uh, and that kind of shapes the mind to treat human beings that way. But why do you think that these huge companies, these tech companies are so susceptible to this ideology and to enforcing this ideology or to stamping out critical inquiry into it? You know, the the big tech companies are, are really quite scary. I, you know, when they stop, you know, people said to me, you know, some people pointed out, okay, who cares that Amazon isn't uh, allowing ads for your book? They're still selling it. To which my reaction is for now. Yeah. But they've, they've eliminated every other bookstore pretty much. So should they stop deciding to distribute it? The book vanishes effectively. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. We are seeing all kinds of extremism and suppression of conversation on social media and the reasons for it, it's a very woke group of people. Whatever the new the new thing is, they are very into control, and, and they are very woke. That's also in the media and in journalism, too, is it not? I mean, pretty obvious that it is. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, certainly I think of the younger generations. You know, the older generation of journalists are tend to be you know, quite reasonable. I mean, you know, they don't always agree, but it's not like they don't ever talk to anyone they don't agree with. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but I don't, I don't get the sense that that's necessarily true for, for Gen Z or even some young millennials. Do you have any, uh, guesses as to possible solutions towards, uh, the discourse and the way that we operate around this issue or we've got to get rid of social media for young people. I do. I do think so for, so for young people, I think that, look, whatever the u- utility of social media, we know it's making us all a little crazy. Um, we know it is, it, it mm. is, is, I mean, our look around as America falling yeah. apart. Yeah. We've never been so angry at each other. And the, screen, the screens and the social media are not helping, except that our republic de- depends on our ability to get along. And, and I have to tell you something. When you see somebody face-to-face, I don't care what their politics are. They're really hard to hate. I'm talking not not evil people or, you know, the most extreme, you know, old right or something like that. But ordinary people who you disagree with, but you see face to face are much harder to hate. But you unleash the same people online. And it's amazing how quick they are to hate each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that um, this is something that's popped up when I've interviewed other writers? It seems that the perception of people that was given to people by the novel which is more drawn out. You spend a lot of time with uh, several characters, and now we're, we're a very literary culture still, but it's all sentence-based now. It's all distilled, and it doesn't have that continuum of of building a character over time. And because we don't have an understanding, or po- popularly we don't have an understanding of the human being as a developmental entity, we can judge them for what they did 10 years ago by our standards now. We can actually judge all of history by our standards now. It really seems that our, our ability to not be narrow in our thoughts and in our hearts is you know, we're, we're losing that. I mean, look at all the statues that are being torn down. I'm not talking about the Confederate ones. Look at the other ones. I mean, look, when you look at a statue and you say, okay, that was a person with flaws, but also great qualities, you know, take Churchill, for instance, who obviously did a a huge amount of good in the world. Um, You also learn to sort of accept that in yourself. 
You learn to forgive. I think that part of the reason people don't apologize anymore and they don't, the successful ones, you see online, the people who are normal and apologize get canceled. So as soon as the mob comes for you, you have to deny, deny, deny. So this is basically a world, we're creating a world with the most extreme people survive are the ones who survive. The the sort of most hardened people, right? Hmm. And, And the problem is we're so afraid to admit that we have any flaws because we know that's enough to get you canceled. We can't forgive anybody anymore. We can't say, okay, she, you know, did something, you know, 10 years ago at a party. So what? Mm-hmm. You know, for some reason, no one, no one, we're not allowing that anymore. Yeah. Um, Do you, what it, was your risk analysis about being canceled writing this book? What was the, what was the cost and benefit? Or I didn't really think about it. I have to tell you, if I think about that kind of thing, I... I have to say, as a writer, you know, I once got this advice. I was doing some novel writing, and I was in this workshop. And, and basically, I was talking to this writer who had, w- was mentoring me in this fiction writing workshop. And he said, basically, if, like, the, the day you stop writing for yourself, you're gone. <laughs> you're done in a certain sense. And I kind of knew what he meant. And that is that, of course, you're always writing for a reader. You always need to have empathy with your reader. You never bore a reader. Um, and you never take for granted a reader's time. I, I try never to do that. But, but you you can't think about the reviews when you're writing. You can't think about what people will say. You just sort of have to divorce yourself from all that and think about what's true. Okay. Are, but are you prepared for the mob coming for you for this? I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. You know. I don't know. You know, am I prepared for violence? No. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> you know, God I, yeah. forbid. Am I? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess just we'll like see what social happens. media, yeah. um, social media cancellation is not something that you're necessarily. It doesn't hold value for you, I guess. No, it holds value for everyone. But look, this is how I see it. Okay, I wrote a book that's true. It describes a real phenomenon. Many, many, many parents across the country will tell you that. Okay. Okay. Um, Teachers, physicians, all sorts of people will tell you they're seeing what I reported on. Okay. That doesn't mean you can't have a different opinion. It just means what I wrote is a true and accurate picture. Okay. Um, I really believe it's true and therefore I'm irrelevant to it. If I hadn't written it, someone else would have. Okay. The truth is out there for somebody to write. I just happen to be the one who wrote this book. You're right there. Is there something hopeful you can say about this current trend of uh, young women? Yeah, I hope there's I hope there's an awakening because I don't think this is gender dysphoria with with most of these girls, and I hope that girls get back to remembering. I, I hope it sobers feminists to remember to tell how important it is to tell girls how great it is to be a woman, and just look around you. There are so many remarkable women to admire. I mean, look at J.K. Rowling. You know, what, there were a thousand billionaires, and one stood up for women and girls, and Mm. she had everything to lose. People say, oh, big deal, J.K. Rowling, she's a billionaire. Look how much she had to lose. She she was adored by everyone until she spoke up, right? There should be schools named for her. She is the one author I can think of who will certainly be read in 100 years. Hmm. She's a remarkable woman. And there are so many others if you just have your eyes open. And so those, those are the stories that need to be taught to young women, not, not stories uh, about... I mean, I guess there's a balance between saying it's going to be rough, you're going to be objectified, you, you're going to have to you probably outcompete men in different ways that you don't want to do if you want to be in this world, that world. But there's a bigger picture towards what it is to be a woman than just, I guess, victimhood. 
Right. Being a woman was never considered a victimhood identity. That didn't mean we didn't complain, but it wasn't a victimhood status. Hmm. It's ridiculous. Look at all the amazing thing women, things women have achieved. You know, it's absurd to, 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 to regard it as some sort of handicap to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you've put your hat in the ring towards being a hero. I mean, you went out there and you published a book, and I know you're putting yourself aside, but you did all the work, and you, the way that you put this thing together is wonderfully written, but there's a lot of wisdom that you put in there. There's a lot of heart in there, and I, I, I'm sure it's going to reach the market that it needs to reach, which would be parents and interested parties. Thank you. I, I definitely put my heart on, into the book, but I had a lot of help. I really reached out to everyone I could. You know, you look at Lisa Littman and what she did as a public health researcher at Brown with no tenure, who noticed something and had the guts and the scientific integrity to pursue it, no matter what everyone around her was saying, no matter how verboten this topic. And she did it to help young girls. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a remarkable thing she did. And I just, I hope everyone gets a chance to learn about it. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time. A double time. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on. All right. You have a good night. You too. Take care. Ciao. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.